Okay, let's go ahead and get our Bibles out. We are continuing on in our topical series, Refresh, walking through the church, what makes a healthy church. This morning's sermon is going to be on biblical church leadership. We're going to be doing a lot of flipping around in our Bible, so just plan to, if you're on an app, have that ready to go. If you're using uh, Gen Z, these things called books. If you're using a book to look at Scripture, prepare to be doing a lot of flipping around there. There are a handful of members here this morning who grew up going to church in this very church building. It's just an amazing testimony of grace. Uh, Many more of us this morning uh, who are members here, uh, actually I wouldn't say many more, but some more members of this church here have only ever known Sixth Avenue as their church home. They've never been a member of another church. But most of us this morning have had our membership in some other local church other than Sixth Avenue Community Church. And because we have so many different backgrounds, it wouldn't be wrong to assume that not all of us know what a church is. Not all of us know who has authority and what kind of authority in the life of the church. Not all of us know who should be leading the body of Christ and how. Not all of us even know if that really matters that much. So if you come from a Methodist church, for example, you may have experienced an Episcopal model of church government, wherein there's a series of interlocking courts that go all the way up to the top. That top guy could be a guy, it could be a council, and then the authority flows top down. If you come from a Baptist church background, you might have experienced what is called a congressional model of church government, wherein the church has pastors over here and deacons over here, each acting as equal but independent governing bodies. Think about Congress, right? The House of Representatives and the Senate, but only in the church. Or you may have experienced a deacon-ruled church where there's one pastor and he's kind of held hostage to this board of deacons, a, a sort of baptized labor union running things in the church. If you come from a non-denominational church background, you might have experienced a church where authority is exercised through a board of trustees, a group of guys, some of whom are members of the church, not members of the church, pastors, not pastors, and they decide who and what and all the other good stuff. Or maybe from a non-denominational church background, you've experienced a monarchical form of church government, wherein there's one guy, the holy anointed senior pastor who has received his authority from on high because of his uh, really straight teeth and really cool shoes and uh, God's blessing, of course, and he rules and leads the church. You probably, you can probably already tell by the way I've walked through these that we don't agree with them, okay, that none of them are to be found in Scripture, Now, a natural question for any thinking person at this point in the sermon to ask might go something like this. Sean, how can so many godly people who are looking at the same book come to such vastly different conclusions about how to structure leadership within the church? That's a good question. It's a slightly naive question in that it assumes that everyone is actually looking at the book in order to find the answers to the questions we have about church leadership. Now, having said that, we can't really say everything that needs to be said about these things this morning. I want to begin just by telling you to, to, to just be certain, to, to make no mistake about it, that Jesus has in fact told us in his word how his church should be ordered. And just because sinful human beings and imperfect churches can be confused about the teachings of Scripture does not mean that the teachings of Scripture themselves are confused or confusing. Now, before we jump into the deep end, I'm willing to bet that here, even in our small church, ever-growing church though, huh? Grace there? Still small church. That there are a number of people who just aren't really convinced that this stuff matters. You know, it's, it's been a long week. You're finally here on a Sunday. You're like, man, I really need to be poured into. I need my... Th-. And then it's like, oh, church leadership. Man, okay, that's a little bit of a letdown. 
it's not uncommon at all for me to talk to brothers and sisters in Christ who they care about theology, right? They want to know about the God that they worship and what he said about himself and about us. Yet when it comes to matters of the church, they're, they're apathetic, right? They just say things like pastor, deacon, one elder, plurality of elders. Does any of this stuff really matter? I mean, as long as we have the same gospel, isn't that what's truly important? Well, this question implies that the way that authority is structured and exercised in the life of the local church will have no impact on the gospel ministry of the church. And friends, nothing could be further from the truth. I could spend 30 minutes this morning, I won't, but I could spend 30 minutes this morning walking through historical example after historical example throughout 2,000 years of church history showing you how every time the authority structures within the church go sideways, the gospel is soon to follow. An easy example would just be the Roman Catholic Church. But I'm not going to do that this morning. Instead, I'd like for us to take a moment and think about the proper exercise of authority in a context other than the local church. Let's do a little thought experiment. Think about this with me. Consider a family. Consider a family where the mother and father are both present, but neither parent knows how to properly exercise their authority in unity. So, a home where the husband is sinfully passive in his leadership. How will his passivity in leadership, his abdication of authority, how will that affect the home? Well, as someone who's talked to a number of Christian women with apathetic husbands in the home who are unwilling to lead, I can tell you, I've heard a thousand firsthand accounts, it does not go well. The wives, to state it in the most minimal way possible, end up being physically, emotionally, and spiritually exhausted. No one say amen to that. I don't want you to indicate your husbands right here in front of everyone. Or consider a home where the wife is seeking to assert her dominance over her husband and the kind of things that that will lead to in the home. Or consider a family where authority is not only used but abused, where the husband tends to lord his authority over his wife rather than leading her sacrificially, or where parents exasperate their children with their authority. What can that lead to? Scripture warns about that. Consider a family where only one parent is present, like the family I grew up in, a single family, excuse me, a single uh, parent household, single mother in my case. There is an abundance of research that clearly demonstrates a causative correlation between single parent households where there's not two kinds of authority present. So there's a, a correlative causation there between that and higher rates of poverty, incarceration, mental health issues, poor education antisocial behavior, and we could just keep walking down the line. So when we think about authority in the family and how it's properly exercised or, or not, it makes perfect sense to us. Yeah, authority matters. But for whatever reason, evangelicals who are quick to have strong opinions about how God has so rightly ordered the family, when we take authority out of the locus of the family and think about it in the life of the church, we just tend to not care very much. I think there are two reasons for this. Number one is we're evangelicals. When I say evangelicals, I don't want you to think about that term in the CNN, Fox News way of thinking about evangelicals as a voter block uh, responsible for either the rise or destruction of many things in our country. Think about it just as people who are concerned with the gospel, right? We are evangelicals, the evangel, that's what we care about. And because we care so much about the gospel, we tend to minimize things that aren't the gospel. So for us, we're so used to fighting for the gospel, protecting the gospel, championing the gospel, that we only have two speeds. It's either a gospel issue or it's not important at all, when in fact, there are a whole bunch of speeds in between those two. The second reason we tend to not be overly concerned with these questions of authority in the church is that as Americans, we are children of the classically liberal worldview, which means that we are all about our individual responsibility and that we are inherently suspicious 
of authority structures. We're suspicious of authority structures in the government, in the church, and so on. Now, if I had to guess, I'd say that there are people here in our congregation this morning, or not even members, just present, who are suspicious of authority. Authority in the church in particular. Maybe these people have been hurt by the poor exercise of authority in the church, either by an individual or by an institution, or maybe they're just suspicious because they've seen the reports, they saw what happened with all those priests, they've heard about the controversies in the SBC. It just seems like the church is not to be trusted. Their authority is, well, it's toxic. Well, if that's you this morning, friend, before we dive into what God has to say about authority in the church, I want to let you know that I sympathize with you. I've been right where you are. I've been hurt by the church, and it's hard. It, it, it's, it's no fun. But the response to that kind of experience is not to reject authority outright, but rather it's to look to God and to say, God, what is your vision for authority? I see the way that these sinful human beings have handled authority. I know that's bad. What would you have us believe about authority? How would you have us to exercise authority? Friends, it's true that authority can be abused, and it can even be abdicated. But what it can never be is eradicated. Authority can never be done away with in this world. It's part of how God has built this world, which is why anarchy is the most naive political philosophy ever invented by the mind of fallen man. So my prayer for you this morning is that after we look at God's word together, we will not only see, but also cherish, promote, and protect God's glorious design for authority in the church. Let me pray, and then we will dive in. Father, help our hearts this morning. Show us in your word. Amen. I've got three points for you this morning. And to be honest with you, I really failed this week on naming these points. I feel like there's got to be like a little pastor's hand guide to alliteration somewhere that would have helped me with this, like three Ps, but I didn't do it this morning. So here we go. And they may even be different in my notes. Three points. Point number one, the three offices. Point number two, the one purpose. And then point number three, how they relate to one another. The three offices, the one purpose and how they relate to one another. That's not that bad, right? Hmm. It'll be fine. Point number one, the three offices. <clears throat> Note takers, here you go. Here are the three offices of the church. Number one, church member. Number two, elder. Number three, deacon. Church member, elder, deacon. Now, right before I get started, I need to make a qualification. It might seem strange to some of us to hear me call church member an office, right? You think elders, yeah, that makes sense. Deacons, sure, I see that. But church members, is that biblical? I've never seen church members called an office anywhere in scripture, so I don't see how you're getting there. Well, friends, it is true that the word office is nowhere used in scripture in reference to church members. But you should also know that the word office is nowhere used in Scripture in reference to elders or deacons either. Now, it's true that in your English translations, you may find the word office. Like in 1 Timothy chapter 3, it reads like this. He who desires the office of overseer, that's shepherd, pastor, elder. He who desires the office of overseer desires a good thing. What you need to know about that verse is that a translation committee made that decision because it sounds good, it makes sense to us in English. The concept is there, and we have an English word that we can use to describe this concept, but in the Greek, the word office is not there. Neither is it to be found in reference to deacons. The word that you will find in connection to elders, deacons, and church members in Scripture are the words domata and charismata, both of which refer to spiritual gifts given to the church for her edification. So elders, for example, are considered gifts of grace to the local church. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. Ephesians 
Speaking of the good things that Christ has done for the church, Paul here says in verse 8, Therefore it says, when he, that is Christ, ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. This is part of a whole section in Ephesians where Paul is talking about what God is doing to build up the church. So when Christ left the church, he didn't leave us to ourselves. He left us with the Holy Spirit who gives us all different kinds of gifts for the building up of the church. Now go down to verse 11. Paul's going to tell us what some of these gifts are. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists. Uh, a quick note on that. Apostles no longer exist today. Uh, prophets no longer exist today. They were used for a very particular time in church history. And evangelists are missionaries. We could talk about them. We're not going to talk about them this morning because we're going to be focusing on the local church. And then finally, he says, and the shepherds and teachers... Pastors and teachers. You can understand that to be two separate things or one thing, the pastors who teach. What you see there in verse 12 after that is to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So pastors are given to the church as a gift so that the church will be built up. And the same thing is true of deacons and members. You see this language of gift and grace used in reference to them in Scripture. Now, let's dig a little deeper. What kinds of things need to be in place for something to be considered an office? Why does it make sense that we use the English word office to describe this gift given to the local church? Well, for starters, most offices have requirements that one must meet in order to be in this position, right? In order to take office. So, consider the office of the President of the United States of America. What do you need to have? A birth certificate. I'm just kidding. Uh, you need to be a natural-born citizen. You need to be resident of the United States for at least 14 years. You need to be at least 35 years old, and so on, right? So there are these qualifications you have to have if you want to run for office. Well, officers in the church also have qualifications that they must meet. They may be a gift from God to the church, but from a human perspective, this gift is only given to those who meet the qualifications. We've already read the qualifications this morning. Uh, our sisters in Christ, who were also sisters and sisters in Christ, read them for us. We read the qualifications for elders and deacons. And then uh, you also see in Acts chapter 6, which uh, our sister read for us as well, more qualifications for deacon. It seems like there's actually more place in Scripture where they talk about the qualifications for deacons than elders. That's an interesting insight for another time. But uh, church members have qualifications too, right? What are their qualifications? Well, namely that they be truly converted, baptized members of a local church. We'll look at that a little bit more in point number two. Okay, what else makes an office an office? Well, Officers have the ability to exercise authority. That's the reason why they have qualifications in the first place. It's because we don't want just anyone to exercise authority over us. It's a very weighty thing to exercise authority. So if someone's going to do that, we want to make sure that they're qualified. You should know that each gift in the church has its own unique kind of authority. Every office in the church has its own authority. Elders, deacons, and church members have their own unique authority. We'll talk about that also more in point number two. For now, just know that most English-speaking Christians call the gift of eldering and deaconing, and we would add church member, an office because they are positions in which members of the church exercise authority according to qualifications as enumerated by God in Scripture. Y'all tracking? All right. You can say, hey, Jonathan, hit me with another Amen. Thanks, bro. I'm this is more lecture than sermon, but I know y'all are with me. Let's look at each one of these offices a little more in depth. Office number one, church member. These are believers who have the authority and responsibility to protect the gospel of Jesus Christ and the purity of the church. They have authority over what we call the who and the what of the gospel, that is, the church has the ability to say that a person has a valid profession of faith or not, 
and they have the ability to say that something is the gospel or not. Now, you'll quick aside here, I'm not referencing individual church members. I'm not saying, you know, like Tim Norton alone has the ability to recognize the who and the what of the gospel. I'm saying that church members, when we are together as a local church, have that authority. Again, we'll look at that a little more in point number two. The second, uh, elders. Elders are qualified men who have authority to teach, preach, and govern the church and equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Right? In Scripture, you'll see the words elder, pastor, overseer, and shepherd used interchangeably. That's because they all mean the same thing. Finally, what you should know about elders in the church is that they are plural in nature. Right? So not singular, not just one, plural. Listen to Benjamin Merkel on this point. He says, Although the New Testament does not designate a particular number of elders that are supposed to lead the church, there is a consistent pattern of each church being led by a plurality or a multitude of elders. In fact, shared leadership is a common theme in the Bible, which is seen in the Old Testament with the elders of Israel. It's also seen in the New Testament as Jesus chose 12 apostles to lead the church. The early church also appointed seven men to assist and care for the needs of neglected widows. This pattern of plurality was continued with the establishment of Christian eldership. The New Testament evidence indicates that it was the norm for every church to be led by multiple elders. There is no example, no example in the New Testament of one elder or pastor leading a congregation as the sole primary leader. There was a plurality of elders at the churches in Jerusalem, Antioch, Lystra, Iconium, Derbe, Ephesus, Philippi, the cities of Crete, the churches in the dispersion, which James wrote about, the Roman provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, and the churches to which the book of Hebrews was written. So to say it another way, there should rarely ever be one pastor in a church. If there is, it should only be for a time as the church is intentionally and prayerfully working towards nominating other qualified men to serve as elders. Finally, keep it up, Jonathan. Everybody else follow Jonathan's lead. Point number three, deacon. These are qualified Christians who guard the unity of the church and protect the elders from distraction. We'll talk more about that later. Deacons serve on an ad hoc basis, which is fancy Latin, just means, you know, as you need it, you know, as it arises. They serve at the need of the moment, which means that in a church there should never really be a standing board of deacons that meets as a governing body. And then finally, you should know that deacons can teach, but being able to or expected to teach is not in their purview. They are there primarily to serve the unity of the church and the physical needs of the body. Now, as I've already said, there are other offices in Scripture besides these. We kind of talked about that. Done with point number one. Point number two. The purpose. Their one purpose. In point number two, we're going to look at what each one of these offices does. And we're going to be diving pretty heavily into Scripture here, so this is going to be kind of the most dense portion of the sermon, but it should be the best part of the sermon because we're going to be spending most of our time just looking at God's Word, and that's what we all love. Amen? All right, turn with me to Matthew chapter 16 so we can look at the office of church member. If you've ever been in our church membership class, or if you've been a member here longer than a day, you have heard this spiel many times, and you're about to hear it again. Because to repeat myself is no problem for me, and it's beneficial for you. Amen? Uh, Starting in verse 13 of chapter 16, Jesus comes to his disciples, and he says, uh, hey, a lot of rumors going on around here about who I am. Who do you guys think that I am? He's asking them for a confession. Who do you think that I am? And they give all kinds of wrong answers, right? You can see that starting in verse 14. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And Jesus goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't ask who they think that I am. I'm asking who do you think that I am? And here comes Peter, chest puffed out, chin held high, ready to give a quick answer as always. But very untypical of Peter, he gets the right answer. He comes in and he says... 
You are the Christ, in verse 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Immediately, Jesus shuts down his pride. He says, congratulations, but you know that you didn't know this, right? Like God in heaven revealed that to you. And then in verse 18, he says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, what is the it there that that Jesus says he's going to build his church on. What is the it? Is it a reference to Peter himself? Well, no. You don't build a church on a rock like Peter, a rock that crumbles. And I mean, the guy was just, even well after Jesus' resurrection, he was still making mistakes all over the place. He had to be rebuked by Paul. No, it's very obvious in this context that what Jesus is referring to is Peter's right confession of who he is. That's the rock that Jesus Christ is going to build his church on. Jesus says, who am I? And those who get the right answer, those who know who Christ is, are in the church. Not just intellectually, but in their hearts. Now turn with me to Matthew 18, where we see this principle applied at greater length. It comes in the context of church discipline. You guys know how this goes. There's a a brother, starting in verse 15, who sins against another brother. Well, what are you to do? Well, one brother will go to him one-on-one, and he'll say, hey, you sinned against me. If the brother listens, fantastic. If he doesn't, what are you supposed to do? Well, you're supposed to get someone else to go with you, starting in verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. What we see here is that if there is sin in the church that needs to be addressed, it can be addressed in concentric circles, starting with those who are most nearly involved. But if repentance doesn't take place, it finally comes to the church. Well, who is the church that Jesus is referring to here? Well, if you've been, if you kind of read the Bible the way you're supposed to, just kind of walk through it, you'll remember back in Matthew 16, Jesus said the church is composed of those who have a right confession of him. That's who the church is here in Matthew 18. It's all those who come together, who congregate with a right understanding of who Jesus is. Now here's where things get interesting for us thinking about church member as an office with authority. Verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you, whatever you, that's not the elders, that's not a pope, that's not a council, That's the church, the gathered saints. Whatever you, the church, bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Here Jesus says, listen, if two or three people get together and they have a right understanding of who I am, they have a right confession... That's a church. They're gathered. They know me. And those people, when they gather, they have authority. How do they have authority? Because I promise that I'm going to be with them in their gathering, and I have authority. So as church members, we have the authority to bind and to loose, to say, hey, brother, you're in sin. You need to repent. And if they don't repent, to put them out of the church. If they do repent, to say, congratulations, God in heaven has forgiven you. We love you. We receive you. If you want to see how this has worked out practically, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In Matthew 18, Jesus is giving a for instance. He's saying, yeah, imagine a scenario. But in 1 Corinthians 5, we don't have to imagine. This actually happened. In 1 Corinthians 5, there's a case of a brother who is living in sexual immorality, somebody who confesses to be a a believer, professes to be a brother. But apparently he's living in such open, unrepentant sin that even pagans, according to verse 1, would kind of shudder at what they see in his life. Starting in verse 3. Actually, starting in verse 2. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. This is the language of church discipline. Verse 3, 
For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced the judgment on the one who did such a thing. Fantastic. Paul the Apostle, the really smart guy, the one who was called by Jesus himself to take the gospel to the Gentiles, he's rendered a judgment on the matter. I guess all is done and taken care of. Not so much. Verse 4, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, right? when you're together under a right confession of who Christ is, and my spirit is present with the power, that's the same language of authority in Matthew 18, power, authority of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. We're not going to talk about what all the rest of that stuff means this morning. What I want to show you is that according to Paul, the congregation had the authority to remove this person from membership. Not only did the congregation have authority, they were the only ones who had authority. Paul had already rendered a judgment. He assessed the facts of the case. He understood it clearly. In his mind, it was made up. It was done. But he doesn't unilaterally excommunicate this brother. He says, no, you have to come together and you have to exercise your authority as a church. Now, let's look at elders. Elders, their job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry through the preaching and teaching of God's word. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 4. You remember verse 11, it says he gave these pastors to equip the church. Let's start in verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So what you see in this text is that the elders have an authority, but that authority is given to them to equip the members of the church so that they can do their job. There's this vision in the mind of God for the church, healthy, whole, happy, looking very much like Jesus Christ. Mature manhood is how Paul describes it. You don't want him to be like a prepubescent or mid-pubescent teenager, you know, kind of gangly, still trying to figure out his identity. No, you want somebody who's you know, 45 years old, knows who he is, strong, mature, emotionally, spiritually, financially stable. That's what we want the church to look like. Well, how does that happen? Well, the elders give you guys the tools that you need so that you can minister to one another and build the church up. You might think about it like this. Elders have the authority to teach you guys how to use your authority. Next, we have the deacons. The office of deacon was seen to originate uh, around an issue of ethnic and cultural tension in the early church that threatened to really uh, upend the church and destroy a lot of the good things that God was doing. Turn with me to Acts chapter 6. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, that is the Greek-cultured, Greek-language Jews, arose against the Hebrews, that is the more Jewish Jews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. This is a big deal. There is some kind of cultural and ethnic tension that is preventing some people who belong to Jesus. It's preventing them from serving and loving and sacrificing for other people who belong to Jesus. Lest you think that racial and ethnic and cultural tensions are unique to America in the 21st century, no. It's been with us since the very beginning. Okay. Verse number two. And the twelve, these are the apostles, which we understand to be kind of a type that serve the church before the elders. And the twelve apostles summoned the full number of the disciples, that's all the members of the church there, and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So there's a priority here. 
you notice they don't say serving tables is bad. They don't say serving tables is for lesser Christians who don't really know all the stuff that's in the books, you know, the non-seminary. No, that's not what they're saying. What they're just saying is there's a prioritization. There's something about their ministry, preaching, praying, teaching, that is so important that other good things shouldn't be able to get in the way, okay? It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Uh, Notice that those who serve as deacons in the church are not second-class citizens. This office is not a second-class office. The people who serve as deacons must be full of the spirit of God and wisdom. So full of the spirit of God and wisdom that the elders can just release them to do ministry in the church and trust that they will be able to handle it without any kind of oversight. That's a very high level of Christian maturity. Verse 4, But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen. And then they kind of list off a bunch of names here. Verse 6, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Uh, real quick, I want you to notice here, uh, who chose these seven, men's, these seven men? Was it the apostles, or was it the congregation? It was the congregation. Who else would know who's full of the spirit and wisdom other than the congregation? The apostles don't know. The members know. That's the reason why they have the authority to set them before the elders. And then the elders pray over them in recognition of the congregation's authoritative choosing. Now, what I really want you to see this morning is in verses 1 and 7. Go back up to verse 1. Now, in these days, that's the days when the gospel was just like a wildfire roaring through Jerusalem, when the disciples were increasing in number. When did this controversy begin? When did a threat to the unity of the church rise up? It's right when God's work was alive active. I mean, the spirit was at work, and then Satan hones in, right? You remember what we just finished in 1 Corinthians chapter 16? Paul says, a a tremendous door has been opened to me in my ministry, and I'm experiencing great opposition, right? It, It makes sense. And it's right at this time when the disciples were increasing that a threat came into the church. Now, go down to verse 7. And the word of God, that's after all this has been resolved. These deacons have been appointed. The the issue is taken care of. Verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Friends, how important is the work of deacon in the life of the church? It's so important. If we care about evangelism, if we care about the Great Commission, if we care about people who don't know Jesus coming to know Jesus, we have to care about the office of deacon. Because it seems like from Scripture, where there are no deacons, elders and their work, it's diminished. But when deacons are in place and working faithfully, good gospel work is not only allowed to continue, but even thrive. Praise God for giving us the office of the diaconate. Oh, as a quick aside, let me remind you that in our members meeting this morning, we will be prayerfully considering uh, a new deacon. It's a very important, special time. I look forward to seeing all of our members there. So let me summarize point number two like this. I'm going to summarize it in two different ways. Whichever one strikes your fancy, you can keep in your mind or put in your notes. Elders serve the church with word and prayer. Deacons serve the church in practical matters. And church members serve the church with one another ministry. Or you can say it the way Matt Smithhurst says in his excellent book on deacons, elders equip for ministry, deacons protect the ministry, and church members do the ministry. I like that one the best, so I'm going to say it twice. Elders equip for ministry, deacons protect the ministry, and church members do ministry. I'm really blown away by God and his wisdom. Like, as I, was, I didn't even think about it as I was preparing my sermon this week, but as I'm preaching it to you, I am like once again blown away at how amazing our God is. Point number three, how they relate to one another. 
This is the point where things get a little tricky. Because if each one of these offices, and maybe you're like, Sean, I stood on office for whatever, okay? Three different kinds of people in the church who have authority. If they each have a true authority, then how do those, how do those authorities work together? I mean, who has authority over who? Who's on top? Who's the real boss around here? That's the question. How will that look in the life of the church? Trying to figure this stuff out can feel like when, you know, the dad goes up and pulls the lights out of the attic and the Christmas lights, you know, and he goes to try to untangle them. It's like, <laughs> throw them out, buy some more. Which is, unfortunately, how a lot of churches have tried to answer this question. Ah, it's too hard to figure out. We'll just make our own. We'll make up our own model. So what I'm going to do in point number three of this morning's sermon is to just try and simplify things for us, okay? Let's start by looking at the relationship between elders and deacons. How do elders and deacons relate to one another? Well, simply put, deacons have a delegated authority from the elders. Deacons have a delegated authority from the elders. What does that mean? It means that the elders share some of the authority that Christ has given them with the deacons in the church so that they can accomplish certain tasks in the church. You think about it like a sheriff with his deputies, right? Deputies are not elected by the people to an office. Only the sheriff is. But the sheriff can't do everything. Now, I know we're like, what's a sheriff? It's been so long since we've watched Andy Griffith, right? Is he the guy who runs the jail, right? But whatever a sheriff does in his particular municipality of enforcing the law, that's what the executive branch does, right? Enforcing the law, he can't do it all by himself. So what does he do? Well, someone who's been entrusted with authority, he then entrusts some of his authority to his deputies. He delegates it out to them. He even gives them a little badge, and that badge is like a symbol saying, I got authority too, right? And then they help him execute the law. That's kind of how elders and deacons relate to one another in the church. Uh, just to be clear, though, in Acts chapter 6, we also learn that elders are not unilateral in their decision of who they give that authority to, okay? Now, let's talk about elders and the congregation. The big question that most people wrestle with when thinking about this stuff is when they're, when they're trying to think through what we call congregationalism, which is what we believe and practice in this church, they, they just don't know, okay, if, if the church has this kind of authority, how do they relate to one another? Um, you have verses like Hebrews 13, 17, right? Hebrews 13, 17, listen to the language, very strong, straight to the point. Obey your leaders, talking to the members of the church. Obey your leaders and submit to them. No, no asterisks, no qualifications. Just. But then you also have passages like Galatians 1.6, which we'll look at here in a minute, which basically say that church members not only have the ability, but also the responsibility to kick false teachers out of the church. So how do you mesh that? Obey and submit, and also you have the ability to fire these guys. Well, the way that I like to talk about this is by once again going back to the family and talking about things called authority of command and authority of counsel. This is not mine. I stole it from someone smarter than me, but I'll use it anyways. So think about the kind of authority that Amber and I have in our home. As the father, I am the leader of the household, right? That's the, that's the authority that God has given to me. And just like Eve came from Adam to be his helpmate, Amber is there to support me. I share my authority with her so that she can help me lead and love our house. But I'm in a position where I have authority over my wife and over my children. But my wife has her own unique authority. How does that work? Here's one way to think about it. If I tell my kids to take out the trash and they say no, well, th then they get beat. No. If they say no, then they go on timeout. No. Get back on track, Sean. If they say no... I use my authority of command. I make them take out the trash. My kids do not have the option of saying no to me. I will force them to do what I tell them to do. That's authority of command, okay? Then there's the authority of counsel. I say, hey, babe, uh, patience isn't here. I'm super busy. Would you mind taking out the trash? And for whatever reason, she says no. Can I make her take out the trash? You're darn tootin' I can. No, I can't. I can't make her. What do I have the authority to do in that situation? Maybe I can try to persuade her of a good reason why she should take out the trash. But at the end of the day, I can't make her do it. 
But there's a sense in which, as a, now we're talking about trash, okay? But there's a sense in which, as her husband, she shouldn't lightly say no to me. My authority that I have in the home is the authority to counsel. It's basically, I have the authority to go, hey, this is what God says, and so this is what I think we should do. So taking out the trash, she'll probably say no to me on that pretty easy. But on bigger things like financial decisions, spiritual decisions, life decisions, right? The only authority that I have with Amber is the authority to say, this is what I think we should do. Let me counsel you with God's word. Well, that applies to our local church. The elders in the church have the authority of counsel. The only real authority that we have as elders, me and Grant and Lord willing in the future, Shane and Will, and back when Michael and Russell were elders, the only authority that we have is the authority to counsel. I can't make you do anything. I can't make you be here on a Sunday morning. I can't make you study God's word on your own and pray. I can't make you love one another, give to the church, serve the persecuted. I can't make you bear one another's burdens. All I can do as an elder is say, hey guys, this is what God's word says. You should heed my counsel. Now you as the members of the church, you have the authority of command. You actually have the ability to make things happen. Just like I make my daughter take out the trash. You have the ability to make things happen. You exercise the keys of the kingdom. As Matthew 18 said, you have the ability to bind and loose. You have the ability to make an authoritative declaration about the who and the what of the gospel in a way that elders on our own do not have. You should know that although elders only have the authority of counsel, it's a very real authority and it should not be cast aside lightly. The the authority of command has the veto power over the authority of counsel, but just like in real life, in government in our country, that veto should not be used lightly. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Thirteen, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. We're going to come back and talk about that last statement here in a minute. But this is a very strong statement. The elders of the church have been given to the church as people who are watching over your souls. There's a sense in which God has appointed us to be the protectors of your eternity. And if you've agreed to have us as your pastors, then you should consider our authority of counsel very seriously before you reject it. Maybe think about the church like this. The local church is like a family. The husband of the family represents the elders. The congregation represents the wife, who has veto power, and the children represent the gospel. In general, the husband has a kind of authority to lead his wife in the raising of their children and in the running of the family. And in general, the wife should follow her husband's leadership in the home. So translate that. In general, the congregation should listen to the pastor or pastors. But if the husband ever starts to lead the family in such a way that is truly harmful to the children, the wife, the mom, she should use her authority. Man, that was really good. That was better than whatever I'm saying up here. If the husband ever begins to use his authority in such a way as to harm the children of the church, then the wife The congregation, the wife, you get what I'm saying, has the authority and the responsibility to overdo, to overcome what the husband or the pastor say and protect the congregation, a.k.a. the children. So, let's go back and look at Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Let's go back and look there again. We looked at Hebrews 13, 
17, to see how serious a thing it is for the elders to have authority. Now we will see how serious of a thing it is for the congregation to exercise its authority. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Apparently, a false gospel has snuck into the church at Galatia. And it's happened very quickly, so quickly that Paul can't believe how quickly it's happened. In verse 6, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So, pause. When does the congregation have the ability to use its veto authority over the elders? It seems like when there's a threat to the gospel. Not when the elders make a decision about the color of the carpet that you don't like, or when they do something pertaining to children's ministry that you wouldn't do, or when there's a book in the bookstall that you wouldn't have there, or when there's a song that we sing on Sunday morning that you don't agree with, right? This is a gospel issue. And by the way, I use all those examples because none of that stuff ever happens in our church. So but when there's a gospel threat to our church, that's when you have the ability to override the elders. Verse 7, not that there is another gospel, but there are some people who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. But even if we, that we there is Paul, his cohort, other apostles, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. That is, let him come under the condemnation of the church as it renders the keys of the kingdom against him. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And listen, when scripture repeats itself, you know it's a very big deal. What we see in this verse is that the congregation at Galatia has not only authority over the pastors, but authority over apostles, even authority over angels, if those people in authority try to lead us away from the gospel. Now, let's get into some application. Actually, before we do that, let me just mention Obviously, in this sermon, I cannot cover every nuance, every jot and tittle about authority in the church. If you have more questions, I have some free books that I've added to our other free books back there. A book for you, a book for you. Free books back there on that podium on your way out of the church. Uh, If you have more questions, you can grab one of those. They should be helpful. There are two in particular that are called uh, the the Congregation and Its Authority that very short, very helpful. Let's get into some application here, more application. Application point number one, submit to your elders for your joy, excuse me, for your good and their joy. Turn back with me to Hebrews 13. Let's flip back over there. So we're told to obey our leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over our souls as those who will have to give an account. Right? So, and we can, let me just actually read the rest of this. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So the first reason why you should submit to us uh, with a heart full of hope and love and peace and joy is because if you don't, you're going to make our job feel impossible. You're going to make it very difficult for us to do our job. And anybody who's frustrated in their job, anybody who gets up in the morning and doesn't want to go to work and do their job, anybody who's not enthusiastic about their work will not do a good job. And if they do do a good job and satisfy their employer, I promise you if they were enthusiastic and loved what they did, they would do an even better job. If we are appointed to help you get to heaven... You should want us to be as full of joy and encouragement as we can possibly be so that we are as enthusiastic as we could possibly be about serving you. If you love us, you shouldn't want to make our jobs any more difficult than they are. Do you understand, brothers and sisters, the weight of being a pastor? Do you know how many sleepless nights we have? Do you know how much anxiety and stress and depression that we deal with? Do you understand the financial and family costs that we bear 
in order to love you and serve you as pastors, even in a very healthy church. Do you understand the weight that we carry with us of your eternal souls? You have no idea. It is a very, very weighty thing. So we do it because we love you and because we love the church and because we love the gospel and because we love Christ. And friends, if you think we're doing a halfway decent job of it, not perfect, that's never going to happen. If you think we're doing a halfway decent job of it, would you love us in return by not making our life more difficult than it needs to be? But what I also want to show you here is that when you make our job harder, it actually affects you. Like an employer who like, crushes his employee, he doesn't realize that by crushing the employee, he's actually harming himself and his own business. Because an employee who's happy to be at work is going to make his business run much better, higher profits, greater satisfaction with the customers. Notice the way this verse ends. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Right? I mean, you don't, you don't think about it selfishly. Okay, I'll be good to the pastor so that things are good for me. That's not what Paul is saying. He just, he's trying to help you to see how all this stuff fits together. If you love your pastors well as they serve you, then they're going to serve you better. And that's going to be good for your soul because your pastors are gifts for you and your edification. Second point of application. Not much to say here. Be prepared to fire your elders. And your deacons, mainly your elders. When I came here for my candidacy weekend, uh, I preached a sermon on Second John. And my final, you know, my closing point for the sermon was, uh, if I ever begin to, if you hire me and then I ever begin to preach a different gospel, you must fire me. I wasn't just saying that, I really meant it. You have this authority, brothers and sisters, and it's intended to be used but just like something like a gun, you don't want to pull it out and use it too quickly. But if you ever pull it out, you better be ready to use it. The threat better be real and you better be ready to pull the trigger. The same thing is true in the life of this church. You don't want to try to fire your pastor over petty things like we've already talked about. But if you ever get to that point where you go to one of the elders and say, hey, I've read the church constitution. I'm asking for a special meeting where we're going to bring up the sins of an elder or the teaching of an elder and we're going to talk about whether or not this dude needs to still be at this church. You better be sure that you're right. But if you are right, if you know that you're going to be vindicated by Christ on the last day, even if nobody agrees with you, even if the church doesn't stand with you, but if you know that you're right, pull the trigger. Because what matters most is not what your pastors think about you, the deacons think about you, your fellow church members think about you. What matters most is what Christ will say to you on the last day about how you use the authority that he gave you in his church. Point number three of application. I already kind of touched on this, but I just want to say it again. You should only oppose your elders if you are sure that on your last day you will be vindicated by Christ. When should you rebel against civil authorities? Let's think outside of the church again. Instead of going to the family, let's go to the civil authorities. When should you rebel against them? Well, most of you probably don't know this because it wouldn't have been edifying for us to talk about, but as we were working through a pandemic last year and our church was shut down for six whole weeks and it was killing me every single day, I was trying to be patient. Me and the elders were talking. Okay, is there a threat? Is there not a threat? How serious is this health emergency? We're going to listen. We're going to try to listen to our leaders, even if we don't agree with them, even if we're not sure about this or that. We're going to try to just Listen to the authority structures that God has put in place and trust them to sort this out. Week one, week two, not that hard. Week three, ah. Week four, things are getting harder. Week five, I haven't seen my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm hearing th things about how everyone is hurting in the church. I'm hearing things that you're not hearing because you're not a pastor. But we know, we know what our members were going through during that time. I have certain members in my ear going, why aren't we meeting right now? Why aren't we being faithful? Who cares what the government says? I halfway agreed with them. Halfway. I was ready to be back. Week six, oh man, I couldn't believe it. Another week and 
Mima Ivy, still had not given us the ability to gather back together again. It was killing me. You should know that I was this close to rebelling against the civil authorities and opening up the doors of our church. But I didn't. We didn't. Why? Because it is no small thing to rebel against authority. You don't want that to be normal or easy in your life. You don't want it to be something that you can just do casually or flippantly. You don't want it to be something that you rush into. Whether I agreed or disagreed with what they were doing was wholly beside the point. I wanted to make sure that if I rebelled against our governor and our mayor and our police chief, that I was going to be able to stand before Christ on the last day and say, I know for a fact that I did the right thing. And you know what, brothers, sisters? I didn't know that for a fact. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a public health expert. I'm a guy who uses Google, thinks he's smarter than he really is. And so we didn't open. And we waited on the authorities. And I thank God that we live in Alabama. I hope that serves as a good case study for you in how you think about rebelling against authority, particularly the authority in the life of the church. Now, let me also add that there are times where you just may not love a bunch of things that your pastors do. None of them are like gospel issues, but for you, your experience with the elders in the church are kind of like death by a thousand cuts. There's no major heresy, but it's like everything that your leaders do, you just disagree with significantly. Well, friends, I think that's one of the great things about living in a, in a country like ours, where we have religious freedom, where churches have been able to flourish. If you don't agree with the way your leaders are leading the church, you're welcome to go find another church. I once gave a talk at our members meeting uh, to people that I really hoped would not leave <laughs> on how to leave a church well, because I think that that's something that we're free in Christ to do if, if, if we need to. Having said that, you should really guard your heart as you think about those things, because you may find yourself disagreeing with everything that the pastors in your new church do. You know, it's always easy to think the grass is greener on the other side, but most people that I know who aren't willing to work through things with their leadership and they leave a church and go to another one thinking it'll be better there, it almost never is. And they just end up going through the same thing all over again. Number four, elders, know your place. So this is to grant and to will Lord willing, and to Shane, Lord willing, and to any other man like Jonathan Smith, Andrew Cagle, Dom, any other man, Tim, in the life of our church that aspires to be an elder. Know your place. You have authority. It's a very real authority, but it's also a very limited authority. Do not, over here, rebellion against the authority that God has placed in your life, on the other end of the spectrum, uh, taking advantage of the authority that God has placed in your life. There's a reason why when we do church discipline in our church, it's not just me and the elders in a back room making decisions. We present it to the congregation. So as elders, future elders, let's make sure we remember that we do have authority, but it's very limited, and let us not go beyond what God has given us. Okay, let's close. 45 more minutes, and then we'll be done. Maybe this morning's sermon has felt to you a little bit more like a lecture than usual, Maybe you're still not getting why all this stuff is really all that important. You're an American, which means that you're a pragmatist at heart. And at the end of the day, you just want to know what the bottom line is. What's the bottom dollar? How does this stuff matter? Boots on the ground. Well, here it is, friends. These things matter. These church offices matter because they are the means that Christ has appointed for the care of his church. When I was younger, I used to watch those crime scene investigation shows, not because I loved them, but because I was a latchkey kid, and there's only so much you can watch on TV before you start watching the shows that you don't really care about. And uh, I loved how like, the forensic specialist would always show up on the crime scene, and he would use his forensic science tools to investigate the carnage on the crime scene, and he would reverse engineer what must have taken place there even if he arrived days or weeks or even a couple months after the event. Well, friends, if you do a forensic investigation, a CSI kind of investigation into what has gone wrong in so 
many unhealthy and heretical churches, you will inevitably find a church where their polity, that is, their authority structures, have gone awry. You'll find a church that did not look to Scripture first to answer questions about how the authority in the church is to be structured. Friends, Jesus loves his church. He gave his life for his church, for you and for me. His blood is the mortar that holds together the bricks of his church. And he has not left us to ourselves to figure out how the church should function. May we not only believe what he has revealed to us in his word about his church, but also love it, protect it, and promote it as long as the Lord has us here together. Amen? Let's pray. Holy God, we praise you for the way that you've spoken to us this morning. I pray that you would protect our people from any uh, wrong thing that I may have spoken this morning. We thank you for this church. Lord, would you continue to be with us in a special way and build us up into the image of your Son. Amen. Please stand and sing with us.